Hello, and welcome back to the Inquisitor podcast. I'm delighted to have Mike Crandall, who's the Sandler franchisee from Oklahoma in the USA. He's been with Sandler for about nine years. Mike, thank you for coming on. And could you give a quick introduction to yourself and uh, why you wrote the book, Motivational Management? Marcus, first and foremost, thanks for having me on the show and excited to be part of this and uh, love what you're doing and how you're taking some of this stuff and taking it to the next level. So just a tiny bit more about me is uh, you already shared, I've had my Sandler office for about nine years. That was after about 20 years in what I like to say the corporate world where I started out in an entry-level sales position and ended up you know, running several different parts of organizations before I left that and started Sandler. As far as the book, I've always had a crazy inquisition or curiosity about what goes on way deep inside the subconscious and what that does to influence people's thoughts and actions. And what happened is that when I joined Sandler, Sandler helped me understand a lot of that. And a few years ago at one of our Sandler summits that we do every year for clients and other people that are tied to the Sandler network, I was one of the speakers and gave a keynote talk on understanding motivation. And afterwards, they asked me if I would turn that talk into a book. Well, that was good. So tell me this, who did you write the book for? Yeah, so great question. And it's one that sometimes becomes a, a real topic of conversation. The title of the book is Motivational Management, which most people would think is really just about managers who man manage people. But what I've found is that it's really impactful, useful, and helpful for anybody that communicates and has to have understanding of what goes on in another person. So the greatest feedback I've had has been from people that are in sales and revenue development roles or in the nonprofit world, even fundraising, from people who are in leadership positions and entrepreneurs who are building out organizations, and then also for parents trying to understand each other as far as spouses and relationships, but then understand kids. The term that comes up frequently when people tell me about what they took away from the book is understanding emotional drivers, meaning what way deep inside the subconscious is driving us and causing us to have the emotions that make us want to or not want to do different things. Very interesting. Have you read Mark Goulston's book, Talking to Crazy? I have not read that book. It's a must read. Again, trying to understand just how messed up and dysfunctional we are as a species. But the crazy he talks about first is talking to yourself and realizing just how deep a lot of our belief systems are wired and talking to, you know, just trying to get past your own head trash before you then start trying to understand other people. Fantastic book, along with Just Listen, which is my number one book of all time. So tell me, if you look at the audience, the different audiences, you've mentioned managers, you've mentioned salespeople. You've mentioned people in their personal life and in not-for-profits. Do you have any examples of where people have taken what they learned in the book and then use that in order to modify their behavior and generate a better result? Yeah, I've actually got several different stories and two that stand out more than some of the others. And just a few weeks ago, I got a message from somebody on LinkedIn and every probably two, three times every couple of weeks, I'll get a message from somebody that I don't know, either by email or you know via LinkedIn or maybe Facebook Messenger. And it's always something about the book. And a guy that I had never met before 
got an email or a message on LinkedIn from him and subject line was loved your book. And then it kind of went into, hey, it was a great book, greatly appreciated. Obviously, being a good steward of Sandler, I want to probe for more information and ask some questions. So I, of course, replied to the message and said, hey, greatly appreciate the message. Thank you. Curious, what led you to pick up my book? And that led to a message exchange where he had heard somebody talk about it, picked it up through Amazon and, and so on and so forth. But what finally came out of it was he shared... He's a, a divisional manager in a company that basically sells things into the financial services industry. So it's something that's complex and personal. And he said, what really has helped me in the book is understanding two things, as he put it. One, how do I build a team that can really get to the things that we want to accomplish? And he used the phrase, better I understand the emotional drivers of the people on my team, the easier it is for me to figure out what, she, what we should do each day, week, month, quarter, year, etc. The second thing that he shared was that understanding the emotional drivers and prospects is totally transformed how they sell. Now, keep in mind, they sell things that are in the insurance and financial services. But what he shared is that understanding when he sits across from somebody what some of their fears and worries and what they want to be known for are has transformed what they talk about in the conversations. And he went on to share that it hasn't changed what they sell, but it's changed everything about how they sell. So that one's been huge. And the second story is actually somebody who approached me at a speaking engagement about a personal life. But what I hear frequently from people that are in sales roles and sales could be sales, business development, fundraising, et cetera, is that once they know more what's going on inside themselves and their prospects slash clients, the easier it is to figure out what we should, and more importantly, should not talk about. I'm sure some of the people that listen to your podcast, Marcus, are well-versed in Sandler and some might not. And We're so anti-features and benefits in the Sandler world as we should be, but that doesn't mean that none of them are important. What tends to happen is that when we're in sales, we pick the ones we think are important and that's what we share with people. And they may or may not matter at all to the receiver. I always use the analogy of showing photos of your ugly children. <laughs> yeah, and that's a, you know, it's so easy for us to slip into that. And we know what's important to us, but it's really about what's important to the other person in those interactions. Absolutely. Well, salespeople sell for their reason. Partners are in business for their reasons, not yours. And customers buy for their reasons, not yours. If you, if you fail to understand that, then you're probably in the wrong species. So I have a rather pejorative view of motivational speakers. I think they're as good as snake oil salesmen. And you can't motivate anyone to do anything ever. You have to find their motivation for themselves because motivation is an internal force. I'm curious about your stance on this. Simple yes or no would be fine, but if you could go into some detail, that would be nice. I'm very much with you. It was interesting, you know, and, and I don't necessarily think of myself or the book as motivational speaking per se, as much as it is helping understand what happens inside somebody. There's a quote that's been around forever that, you know, motivation is great, so is bathing. That's why we should do it regularly. <laughs> I think the challenge is, and, and one of the things that's really talked about in the book, 
is that there's really two main types of motivation. There's the external motivation, which is carrots and sticks that you know has kind of been talked about forever. And then there's the internal or attitudinal motivation, really understanding the person. And most of my world, most of my career before Sandler, especially having close to 20 years in the corporate world, was that external motivation. We dangled carrots and you know, we threatened with sticks. And if you do this, you get this. If you don't, you get that. And that tends to be a lot of where motivational speakers focus on. And you just need to give yourself some treat for doing good things. And I think that your reference of snake oil is a good one. What I talk about in the book is that that external motivation has a place, but it generally is very, very, very short term. And you know, I use the analogy in the book that the donkey that's pulling the cart is going to want the carrot as long as he or she's hungry. But as soon as they eat the carrot, we've got to sit around and wait for them to get hungry again. And if you take that same analogy and you put it on employees or kids or prospects or clients, we tend to misinterpret stuff all the time. Most of the book and most of my belief is really understanding what goes way deep, way on deep inside people's subconsciouses that drives thoughts and actions, good or bad. And so it's not really about, quote unquote, motivating others. It's about understanding ourselves and then understanding others. There is an old proverb, which is you can't lead a horse to water and make them drink. You can if you put salt in the oats because you make them thirsty. So in terms of going deeper, talk to me about the processes that you suggest that people adopt in order to uncover that individual's motivation. Yeah, so I'll share a couple of different things. And in the book, we talk about there's the external and the internal motivation. The external is the carrots and the sticks. And and that, again, has a short-term place. But that internal motivation and the first step in really being able to understand and use it is, and we break this down in the book, is that there's five twos, as in the letters T-O, twos, that really happen inside somebody that drive thoughts and actions. And we like to say that those are to do, as in D-O, to be, as in B-E, to have, H-A-V-E, to accomplish, and to be known for. And inside of each of us, ourselves included, and prospects and clients and employees and our kids and our spouses and friends and family members, those things exist, but we all have different ones that are differently prioritized. And the first step is to really start to figure out what really drives us individually. It's really hard to understand other people's motivators and inside things that drive their thoughts and actions if we don't understand our own. And ours may or may not align. There's a story that I share in the book that, and I've used this several different times back in my corporate world, and I was actually a sales rep for DeWalt Power Tools, and we had this big contest to win a trip to a big golf tournament. I don't remember what tournament because I'm not a big golfer myself. And my manager was like dumbfounded that I didn't really care and work to win the trip. And he asked me one day, he goes, why? And I said, I really don't care about golf. And he couldn't wrap his head around that I didn't care about golf. Therefore, I didn't care about the prize or the trip or the sales contest because it didn't matter. There was nothing about it. And 
I think what happens so frequently, and we're all guilty of this, is that we think if it matters to us, it should matter to other people. So, you know, if I'm a manager, I go, hey, if we do all these great things, everybody gets to go home early on Friday. Well, maybe I don't care about going home early on Friday. Maybe I don't even want to go home early on Friday. (laughs) Well, this again ties very closely to a subject that's close to my heart, which is compensation. You see compensation schemes being put in place that clearly motivate the management team, but they have either no effect or the wrong effect. Also, you see, when venture capital comes into an organization, they very often, they're so fixated on the number of new business meetings that they focus the attention of salespeople on the wrong end of the problem, which is having effective conversations with prospects and having good first meetings. But management seems to be being pilloried all the time if there aren't enough new business meetings in the pipeline. So I'm curious, from the perspective of someone who owns a business where VCs or investors have come in, how do you recommend they manage those expectations so that they focus on the right end of the problem and the business is actually supported in its growth rather than simply chasing some pointless metrics that keep the investor's intellect happy, but doesn't deliver the real result, which is the one that they want, which is profitable growth towards exit? Marcus, that's a wonderful question. And I think compensation overall is such a huge, huge topic and place that we get tripped up or messed up. And I'll answer the question, but just to give you an example of how compensation so frequently gets talked about and probably isn't focused on the right way is that especially when we're in business and the for-profit world and in sales, we love to say that you know money and compensation and money and compensation. And I always use these two examples to share that it's really not about money and compensation. If that's what really drives people to do well, really drives them towards their purpose, and we talk an awful lot about understanding purpose in the book, is you only have to look at two professions, teaching and ministry. Nobody goes into those two professions for the money. They go into it because there's something deep inside them that drives their thoughts and actions that makes them want to actually have some type of impact that's not about a paycheck. And and we love to dangle compensation out there, whether it's in sales or management or huge one that I have heartburn over is when companies throw out incentives for referrals. Everybody that sends us a referral, we're going to give a gift card. And I've seen when we start to strip that away, that actually being counterproductive in so many different ways. But specifically, your question about venture capital and you know profitable growth, what I love to do with clients is really start to ask questions and try and strip away, what is the ultimate long-term goal that we're looking for? And the greater we can have understanding around that, the easier it is to say, what are the things that we should really do that we have control of that can line us up to move towards that. And the second layer of that is then how do we understand what our people want to do and be part of? If you think about those five twos that I'd mentioned, inside of us, we all have some, we just don't always understand them. And if we can align the individual people's, what their internal drivers are with the company goals of that profitable growth, amazing things happen. And the example that I always use is when I was in the corporate world, I won lots of sales contests. 
And it was never about the prize. It was always for me, and I understand this now being part of Sandler and, and putting thoughts onto paper in the book, I'm driven internally to be known as the guy who fill in the blank, regardless of the prize. And you know, that became crystal clear when I was in the corporate world, in the United States anyways, in the late 90s and early 2000s, before they changed tax laws, there were lots of ways that companies could have tangible prizes without tax implications. So you could win a stereo or golf clubs or whatever. And we had some contests several times, several months in a row where we could win a Bose stereo surround system. And my boss comes to me one day and he goes, Mike, you must really love music. (laughs) Well, it didn't even register with me. He goes, do you realize you've won five Bose surround sound stereo systems in the last year? And I didn't even realize it because they were all in boxes in my garage because the prize was irrelevant to me. It was winning for bragging rights that was relevant. You're not a firstborn by any chance. I am a firstborn, so good catch. <laughs> <laughs> so, and that's a help, but it's not a guarantee based on birth order. It is incredibly helpful. So this raises another question as well, because I mean, obviously, if you're not familiar with Maslow's hierarchy of needs for the listeners... The first level is survival. The second level is security. The third is belonging. The fourth level is self-esteem. The fifth level, the highest level, is self-actualization or the legacy that you will leave behind. And it seems to tie in very neatly in terms of understanding people's motivation. Because if someone is in survival mode, then essentially they're gasping for air. They're trying to keep their head above water. If they've managed to attain a certain level of performance or a certain level of recognition, then they want to keep it. No one, I mean, I I don't know anybody really who would go out in order to be able to buy a Porsche and work a second or third job. However, once they've got the Porsche, then they would struggle to let go of it. So if it looked like it was under threat, they'd probably go out and get that second or third job in order to keep it. Belonging is very much about peer pressure or feeling like you've arrived. The lower end of self-esteem I always see as ego. And that's where you're hooked, essentially, into wanting to be recognized, wanting to be seen, all that kind of stuff. And the higher level is about self-concept. It's believing who you can be. And then that legacy piece is really interesting as well, where people want to... You see this a lot with chief executives who are coming to the end of their tenure. They'll often write a book they'll end up being on daytime television or on the news. You haven't seen the CEO for 10 years and suddenly they appear and they're promoting their book because what they're trying to do is write the history they want to be remembered for. And I'm curious, in terms of how you use uh, Maslow with your clients, do you use it in the first place? And if so, what are the different elements of it that you employ? Yeah, so Marcus, I appreciate that. And and it's funny how much that applies to the stuff that, A, we talk about in the book, but matters so importantly in our interactions with other people, not just as a manager or a leader, but in sales and and all sorts of other things. And there's a story that one of my clients shared with me, and this is about five years ago, we were doing some consulting work with an organization that kind of has a retail storefront and part of their business. And as we were going in and really starting to dissect what happens in the organization, one of the things that talked about, and you'd mentioned this word towards the beginning of culture, 
you know, they've got this great culture of teamwork, but one of their most important employees towards the end of some days really seemed to like fall off. And in digging into this, what we found, and it really made me think about the Sandler Rules book. There's a rule that says people buy for their reasons, not the salespersons, but that becomes a management rule. People work for their reasons, not the bosses. Anyway, we started digging into what happened with this young lady is that she had a small child that was in daycare. And when their afternoons in the world that they were in got busy, sometimes she risked picking her child up late. And she did not make a ton of money, but she was highly committed to the organization. Well, I don't know about all parts of the world, but in the United States, most daycare, if you are late picking up your child, you are penalized by the minute. And so what happens is her income for the day would quickly erode if she was a couple minutes late picking up her child. The impact of the organization is that she would have this massive anxiety in the afternoon is, am I going to get out on time to pick up my child on time? And the organization didn't see it. All they saw is that her work fell apart in the afternoon sometimes. But once they understood that there was this internal anxiety, and again, things inside her subconscious that drive thoughts and actions, because she couldn't articulate it without us asking her lots of good questions, because she didn't even understand it herself. They simply changed her schedule where she came in 30 minutes earlier, which meant that her cushion to pick her child up was far greater. The anxiety went down and her work performance skyrocketed. And if you think about Maslow's hierarchy, her survival was, is enough of my income going to be taken up being penalized for picking up my child late that I can feed my kids what I want to feed them? Can I pay my rent or my car payment or auto insurance or whatever it was? And we tend to miss that so frequently because we process through our world. And bosses do it terribly in most organizations. The boss makes more than the employees, probably lives a little bit different lifestyle. And often we can't wrap our heads around what's going on in their world. What are they worried about? And are they on a different level of hierarchy in Maslow's hierarchy than we are? And what level do they want to get to? And can we help them? If you take that and put it in sales, and I see this happen, financial advisor comes in to try and sell you life insurance, probably a good idea, but you're trying to figure out how do you pay your rent. We're having conversations on such different levels that will never connect because I may want to leave a legacy for my family with life insurance, but I can't pay my rent. We can't have that conversation on the same level. This is really interesting. I had an experience last week. We were interviewing for a client of ours, and it's a really pivotal role. And one of the candidates, she interviewed okay, but there were questions in my mind. And I wanted to see her in action, and um, I wanted to get a sense of a deeper dive. And what came out of that conversation was she had very low self-awareness, very poor ability to address conflict, low accepting responsibility. And what was really interesting was the motivation of the management was to try and fill the vacancy because it's been open for a while. It's a really important but tough job to fill. And I think we uh, saved an own goal because her reaction to being rejected was incredibly negative, very hostile. And unless I think we need to look at people's motivation in the recruitment process as we're selecting them. I think 
One of the most useful lessons I learned was never compromise on recruitment. Better no breath than bad breath in a sales territory. And if managers don't really understand how to interview for that kind of information and they can't uncover those intrinsic either drivers or weaknesses, then they're effectively buying a management problem. Is there any advice that you would give to people in the designing of the candidate and the selection and recruitment process in order to make sure that they've uncovered that personal motivation, they've made sure that there is a fit? Yeah, Marcus, it's a great, great point. And the fact that we want to uncover this as early as possible, ideally before we add someone to the team is huge. So there's a couple of things that come to mind. We talk about in the book that growth as an adult human specifically is really a five-step process. Step number one is awareness. Step number two is knowledge. Then it's application, skill, and habit. And there's some people that don't have awareness. To understand more importantly and specifically what's going on inside somebody, we need to ask questions and they need to be very specific. I'm speculating you've probably read Antonio Dorito's book, Asking Questions the Sandler Way. It's a lot of great stuff in there. When we're helping clients with recruiting and hiring, we really want them to do a couple things. One, build out specific questions that uncover things that we want to know, especially around motivation and internal drivers. If I just ask a generic question like, hey, what drives you? I'm going to get generic information like money, family, etc. But if I can ask much more specific questions, like one of my favorite is, Marcus, what was your single greatest business accomplishment last year? It's very specific. You've got to give me something. Then the most important part of that is then probing why that one and listening for, you know, what was it? The other thing that we encourage, and I'm speculating that you do this when you help clients as well, is making sure that we use some type of really good benchmarking assessments that dive in and, and uncover stuff far in advance. And the process that we built in Sandler to use a couple of different things from some of our partners allow us to understand things that are going on inside somebody around ego and empathy and process orientation and goal drive. And if I can see those things on paper, then I can ask questions about them. And those are one of the best resources and tools that we can have to find what's going on inside somebody. But it's really identifying what are we looking for? And then are we asking specific questions to uncover that? Because it's so easy, and, and I see this happen so, so, so commonly in the hiring process, we ask generic safe questions like, what drives you? It doesn't tell me anything because you're going to tell me the answer you think I want to hear, <laughs> not necessarily what really is going on inside you because you might not even be aware of what it is. Well, this then ties back to uh, some other really useful research that Gallup did. Gallup did, I think over 39 years, they interviewed over half a million people for 90 minutes about, and these were people right at the top of their game from church and uh, public sector, through defense, through finance, and all sorts of others. And they came up with this thing called the Gallup Strengths Finder. And it looks at, I think it's 33 different strength areas. And one of the most useful lessons that comes out of Marcus Buckingham's book on the subject is that your strengths are your development areas. 
And a strength is something that you can't wait, you look forward to doing, you can't wait to do it. When you do it, time flies. You do it well, you get great feedback, and when it's over, you can't wait to do it again. And what's really interesting is when I work with my clients and help them uncover their salespeople's strengths and use that as part of their coaching process, miracles happen. I remember working with was one of the Caribbean island groups. They had sales team over here in London because obviously tourism is such a key area for them. And they had a team of four that was quite dysfunctional. They were producing about 15% of their target. They were fighting all the time. Two of them had almost ended up on blows. And one of them was on report and on basically on his last legs. We did the strengths profiling and we had that conversation with them. And we restructured their roles around their strength areas. Within four weeks, they were 85% of target. Now, that was quite impressive. I mean, that was the front end of the target, obviously not the back end. But everything worked because the people were doing the jobs that they do well. And if you hire people and there's too much weakness in their profile for the role, then their motivation will quickly plummet and then work becomes a chore. So again, in terms of helping people to build powerful teams where each individual's strengths make the weaknesses or their own weaknesses and the weaknesses of others irrelevant, how do you suggest that people go about doing that? Because obviously building powerful teams is key. Marcus, I think that that's a huge point. And Gallup organization has lots of great things, whether it's the, the strength finders assessment inventory or the years of research that they've got. I find that what I really want to understand in somebody is, and this is what I like to say, three things, current strengths that we can build on, current gaps that we should identify. And then the third thing is, what are the barriers to closing those gaps? And one of the things that, and this is how it ties to motivation, is that we are all going to gravitate towards things that we like whenever we possibly can. And it's easy to use the example of of fitness in the gym. There are some people like that and getting up early in the morning to go to the gym is not a challenge for them at all. There's some people that just don't like that. And that's going to be always a challenge or a struggle. And it's an internal thing that lives inside of us that if we can understand those emotional drivers and align up tools and resources and duties towards that whenever possible, it's huge. For me, as an example, every time I've taken Strength Finders, Maximizer and Competition come up as a couple of my key strengths. When my team understands that and our team uses it internally as well, everybody knows if there's something we need to squeeze every drop out of, for lack of better terms, they better ask me because I'm probably going to see things that nobody else sees because of that Maximizer strength. And it gives me huge, great joy and pride to be able to go, hey, what about this too? And not to point out that everybody else missed it, but to find some way to go just a little bit extra. And for me, helping clients with that is huge because, you know, in Sandler, and you've been doing Sandler for a while, we are so great at helping people with blind spots. Well, maximizer as a strength is really helping other people with blind spots. Now, how I help them discover that and and deliver that's obviously crucially important because that could come across very wrong. But when we take that and we understand what are the things inside that drive people's thoughts and actions, and it's not just strengths, but it's also how those apply to things. 
there's a story that I like to share, and, and this actually just came up every year in our Sandler office. We do in the month of December an annual goal setting workshop. We obviously do a, a cut and paste dream board. And for anybody that's not familiar with those things, the appendix in my book actually has some great step by step how do you do some of these things? And every year we ask, hey, for those of you that were here last year, now fast forward, there's 12 months between this. Would anybody like to share any big takeaways? So December, just last month, because we're in January now, there was a lady who's an office manager for one of our clients, not in a sales role, not in a a high-level management role. And she stood up and she said, hey, here's a couple things that have happened since last year when I did this. And the one that resonated the most with people is that she had lost enough weight to get into a certain size dress. And the interesting thing about that is that she shared weight loss had been a goal for her for about 20 years, and it had never really happened until during the goal setting, she was able to connect that to the fact that later on in the year, her son was getting married, and what she really wanted was to look a certain way in a certain style of dress at her son's wedding. Now we started to get to something really specific. And she found a picture that she put on her vision board or dream board of a lady in a dress that was similar to what she was looking at. And she put it up in her bathroom on her bathroom mirror. So she saw it every day. And she said, we did that in December. The wedding was in August. She said, not only did I hit my goal to be in a certain size dress, I actually went one size beyond that. But it was finding that stuff way deep inside of her, bringing it out and making it real tangible and relevant where she could focus on. You know, that whole thing about, hey, you know, I want to lose weight. I mean, probably what, half the world population puts that as a goal every year, something to do with fitness. But it's how do I connect it with things that I have control of that's real and tangible and relevant. And then if I want to understand this in other people, I've got to get much more specific about the questions. A great thing, you, know, you asked about recruiting and hiring. We have our clients, if they're hiring for someone in a key role, obviously we help them navigate through some of that. But when people show up on day one, most of our clients have now done this. They've given them and they give them kind of a sheet that comes actually out of my book how to do a dream board because most people have never done one. And it doesn't matter what's on the dream board. They will say, hey, Marcus, your first day is next Monday. You need to bring a little bit of a cut and paste dream board of things that really matter to you. And the things on the board aren't really as important as the conversation leads to. Hey, you put this car on here. Tell me about that. Why is the car on there? Hey, you put this picture of an island on there. Why is the island on there? And what it does is it leads to a totally different level of conversation around what's going on inside that person. And if we can get to that level with other people, it's amazing how understanding those emotional drivers and the things in the subconscious can greatly help us in leadership and management and sales, customer service, and even parenting. Absolutely. Your point that it was a personal driver is really key. I think another aspect of that is control. And this brings me neatly to another one of my go-to books, 
which is Paul Stoltz's The Adversity Quotient. And in there, he has this wonderfully elegantly simple framework called CORE. And it stands for Control, Ownership, Reach, and Endurance. Personally, I use it as a platform for discovering pain. But it's a very powerful tool in terms of discovering how resilient an individual is, in terms of what they can and can't control, what they want to control, what they should be able to control, what not controlling something means to them in terms of personal impact. Ownership is who owns the problem, who's responsible, who's able to respond to the situation that's arisen. Reach is how far reaching, what's a ripple effect? If you drop a pebble in the pond, who else is affected if they do a good job or a bad job, if they do nothing? And endurance is how long they've tolerated it and how much longer they're willing to tolerate it. And it's a really powerful mechanism for helping understand someone's motivation to stay stuck and to change. So a key question that I'd like to ask is, what are the dangers of staying stuck in terms of how this affects self-concept and how it affects the overall performance of an individual? Another key question for us to explore, and oftentimes we get stuck and we don't even realize it. You know, there's a phrase that's been around forever. You know, the definition of insanity is doing the same things over and over and expecting different results. What tends to happen is that we get stuck and we don't even recognize it or realize it. I was doing a strategy session for a client a couple of years ago, and they had a huge aha that I thought was pretty relevant. And they said, it's amazing how we only ask for help on super significant things, like things that are gargantuan and happened to be a nonprofit organization. And they said, only time we ever ask for outside help is on a capital campaign. And it really resonated with me that, you know, they have all these other things that go on every day and every quarter and every week and month and year and all these different priorities. But every 10 or 15 or 20 years, when they do a capital campaign for some huge project, they ask for help. The CEO literally went, oh my goodness, how much do we get stuck because we don't even realize that we're stuck? And that awareness becomes so crucial and such a key. What I find that we've got to do is figure out what's really going on and why does it matter? And what tends to happen is that we don't ask deep enough questions. We ask that generic, I talked about generic versus specific question earlier, that generic question, we take the first answer. And if we ask the wrong question, we kind of set ourselves up for failure. Marcus, I don't know about in all parts of the world, but in the United States, it's so common to hear the question, how's your day or how are things or how's your week or month or year or whatever? And the most common answer we get is fine, which it's amazing how many people will say they hate it when people say fine, but we ask questions that people have to give us fine as an answer to. (laughs) And one of my clients, it was funny, he was complaining about this with his kids and he'd ask his kids how school was and they'd say fine. And I said, is that your kid's fault or your, your fault? And he'd immediately, well, it's not a kid's fault. They should give me more info. And I said, well, you're asking the question wrong. And I said, try asking this question. What was the best thing that happened at school today? It was funny because he called me up and he's like, oh, that won't make a difference. I said, can the answer find to that? He said, no. And it was changing that tiny behavior of the single question he asks at the end of the day. What started to happen is his kids had to report good news because when he'd say, how was your day? He'd either get fine or they'd complain about something which created a problem. We've got to ask the different questions to uncover what's going on. And we should do it in interviews. We should do it in reviews. We should do it 
you know, when we're helping our clients and our, our employees pre-brief or debrief, it makes me think of a story, Marcus. There's a about two years ago, right when the book came out, I was speaking at a big luncheon. There were probably 200 people in the room and a lady came up to me that I had never met and afterwards, and she said, Mike, your book totally changed my life. And that's a huge, powerful statement that I always get a little bit uncomfortable with because I find it hard to believe one book ever changes anybody's life, at least not any book written by you know, most of us. And I said, that's a powerful statement. What do you mean by that? And she said, I've got a teenage son. And she said, I always used to think he was unmotivated. Your book helped me realize that he's not unmotivated. What motivates him is just totally different than what motivates me. Absolutely. And we tend to find fault and blame and cast you know, negative stuff and go, well, they're just not because it's not like us. Well, if we did, imagine if everybody in the corporate world did that to people who went into teaching. They're unmotivated because they're not trying to make more money. We wouldn't have a lot of people getting better in society or in ministry or nonprofit work. But we do it so frequently. Bob didn't try to win the sales contest. He's not motivated. Probably not the case. It's probably whatever the carrot was, Bob didn't care about. And kind of that story about the lady in the wedding dress, we've got to find ways to connect it to what's specific to them that's then tangible, realistic. And then if there's a way that we as the boss, the owner, the spouse, the parent, the board member, whatever it is, can help them achieve that, it's crazy what starts to happen. But as simple as that concept is, it requires us to redo our thinking. Well, this has raised a number of thoughts in my mind. So I'll just uh, quickly summarize. When I first started out in sales 30 years ago, the dad of a good friend of mine used to run Jardine Matheson over in Hong Kong. And uh, he said, a rut's a coughing with both ends kicked out. And that seems to be very apposite. The next thing that you've uh, struck is that if you want to get better answers, you have to ask better questions. And despair.com, I don't know if you've come across them. They're my third favorite website. All these posters of eagles, dare to soar, and all that kind of stuff tends to make me cringe. So this is the opposite end of the spectrum. So they have a customer dissatisfaction charter. If you're not happy, we're not happy, that kind of thing. And uh, one of their posters was dysfunction, showed a snapping chain. And it said, have you ever considered in all of your dissatisfying relationships, the one constant is you? And the challenge here is that if you're not getting answers that you want, then it's really down to you as a manager to ask better questions and to ensure that you understand the dynamics of what's going on within your people. So in your book, you talk about the parent-adult-child model. And I'd like to touch on that because I think one of the things I see very often is a manager with good intent manages to demotivate somebody by going into the critical parent, by making assumptions as to what's happening. And as a result, the other person tends to feel persecuted and they feel like they're being treated with childlike contempt. So I'm curious, again, what drove you to use the parent-adult-child model in the book? And can you share some lessons of how that you've been able to help clients apply it? Great catch on that being in the book. And 
It's one of the things that, you know, when I started my journey with Sandler about nine years ago, really stood out to me. And concept comes out of transactional analysis, which is psychological theory. And I had never heard of it until I was exposed to Sandler. Don't know why. And it's interesting that I think it's so powerful, but it's really not talked about very much. Um, I've got a a friend who's got a doctorate in psychology and had never heard of it in all of their years of schooling for whatever reason. But what I find is that the better that I can understand how I'm coming across in interactions and how that influences the responses and reactions that I get, the easier it is to get to what's inside of us. And what tends to happen is if I sound like that critical parent, which is one of the, you know, the tapes, the, in the parent, there's both critical and nurturing. And I say, you know, Marcus, you should just do it this way. Well, we're going to end up with a disconnect because there's somewhere inside of you that, you know, your emotion from your child ego state is going to say, well, you know, you don't know what you're talking about, or maybe not out loud, but that's what you say to yourself in your head. And you might rebel and and do it differently just because I said it should be a certain way. Where it fits into motivation is really understanding that if I want to understand what's going on inside of another person, I've got to slow down and I've got to nurture that. If you and I just met and the very first thing I do is say, Marcus, tell me about what motivates you. We don't have any trust. We don't have any connection. You don't even know what I want to do with that information. And this is where the Sandler submarine fits into it and bonding and rapport being the first step, you know, which is all about no like trust and value. But then we use that to navigate. And then I can ask some questions. So, you know, examples. So, Marcus, when you were a little kid, what made you want to go into sales? Or what else did you want to be? And you'll notice that that starts to sound a little bit like that nurturing parent. The nurturing parent is going to be the one that helps unlock what's going on inside of somebody that helps us figure out how do we navigate this conversation. Think about the story, the the lady that came up to me at the speaking engagement and said the book helped her realize that her son wasn't unmotivated. He just had totally different motivation than her. And, And we tend to cast that problem on other people. It's their fault. Well, that's much more critical parent than nurturing parent. So I see that we're coming up to the hour. And there is one other area that I really want to delve into, which is the behavior attitude technique triangle and how to use that as a tool to get the best out of people. Um, so can you talk a little bit about that, please, Mike? Yeah, well, I think there's a couple factors to it. And for people on the podcast that might not know, you know, that's the Sandler success triangles. And triangle has three points. The three points on ours are behavior, attitude, and technique. What tends to happen is that we've got to understand behavior is the driver for most things. And from a motivation standpoint, once we can find that somebody really wants fill in the blank, what do we need to help them change to get there? And the subcategories of the behavior triangle are goals, plan, and action. So if I know that, hey, they really want this big picture, long-term thing, how do we help them set some goals, build a plan, and drive action towards that? Somebody shared with me a story a couple weeks ago that was super powerful. He shared with me that when he was going off to college, his dad offered him, if he finished his first year with a certain GPA of college, that his dad would give him at the end of the first year a Mitsubishi 3000 GT sports car, which is pretty expensive sports car. And this is a while ago. Uh, he's, I'm going to guess, in his 40s now. So this is, you know, 25 plus years ago. And 
he said, it was amazing. He said, you know, I got to college. I was massively motivated. And then the weekend rolled around and a pretty girl said, hey, do you want to go out and party? And all of a sudden, that big picture of the car at the end of the year disappeared fast. That's because it wasn't broken down into things that were tangible and measurable. And we tend to, and we're all guilty of this, we sacrifice what we want most for what we want right now. What the behavior attitude technique is, is how do I stay focused on that? You know, if I want that car, how do I break it down into the behaviors that I need to consistently do on a daily, weekly, monthly basis to move me towards that? And as managers and leaders and parents and salespeople, we tend to be terrible at that because we show up and go, hey, Marcus, here's what should matter to you. But when we sell things, and Marcus, one of the things that I find is that if my company, and I say this and I say it to clients and prospects all the time, has one of these six things, if what you sell is big, meaning physically big, if it's expensive, personal, technical, complex, or bought very infrequently, understanding emotional drivers in the subconscious is crucial. If I sell bottled water, which is a commodity, you're going to buy it. You're going to drink it next week. You won't even remember what brand it was or who you bought it from. But if I sell software, if I sell financial services, if I sell, I know you do a lot of work in the hospitality high-end industry. If I sell vacation experiences, those are things that are big, expensive, complex, personal, technical. And me understanding what your internal drivers are, me understanding my own internal drivers, the manager understanding the people's start to transform things incredibly. And that's where understanding how behavior, attitude, and technique tie together. You brought up something super early in this that was powerful. Lots of motivational speakers are kind of like snake oil salespeople. That's if they're only focusing on attitude, it's really easy to say, you just need to have a good attitude. I might be all pumped up when I'm in the stadium listening to the motivational speaker, but then I go home and I sleep and it's all gone the next morning, or at least most of it when I wake up. If I focus on behavior and what are the little changes I need to make, now I can influence my attitude. That's been one of my greatest takeaways from Sandler. Me too. In fact, I've implemented the half a percent rule with all of my clients. Um, If you take $100 or £100 and you get half a percent interest per day and you only work for 270 working days in the year uh, because we obviously have less fewer working days than you do you end up with 373 pounds at the end of the year now there are very few salespeople who can claim a 37 percent increase let alone a 373 percent increase in performance and interestingly enough the whole piece around understanding both the interplay between behavior attitude and technique I'm minded of a a client from probably 12, 13 years ago. They're a matchmaking agency, and they had an average order value of £1,200 for making matches. What they did was they got very highly educated Japanese women who didn't really want to live in a two-meter-by-two-meter apartment in Tokyo and matched them up with wealthy, time-poor business folks, surgeons, and so on in London. And what was really interesting, within four weeks, by implementing BAT and uh, really focusing on the motivation of the buyer, we took their average order value from 1,200 to 36,000 pounds. Now, that's the difference because it is one of those big, expensive, personal, very infrequent, and highly complex 
purchases. And it helped them to really focus on what mattered because it's essentially a headhunting job. They were trying to find a, a good candidate for the, the right match. And when you understood that, you understood that all buying decisions are emotional. In fact, if the emotional centers of the brain are damaged, people cannot decide whether they want tea or coffee. So it's unavoidable. You can't override two to 300 million years of hardwiring and hope to use logic and reason or features and benefits to convince them. So and I, actually, I, I lied. I've got one more question. So obviously, I have a, a big interest in channel sales. And I'm curious, again, in terms of your experience of working with your clients who sell through partners, how can they apply the lessons of motivational management in order to build better, stronger partnerships that are more productive, more profitable, and more loyal? So, Marcus, I'm glad you asked that question. And I think that when you're in a role like channel sales, and I've heard you say that you know, it's arguably the most difficult sales role that exists because you don't have direct influence. You're, you're trying to influence people to influence people. <laughs> and you know, there's multiple layers there. But what I find is that if you take the things in the book and you do three things, first, really start to find out as a channel sales manager, what are the things that really drive me? And, and think about you know, that internal motivation and those five twos then I can start to build out my success triangles, my behavior, attitude, and technique to make sure that my daily, weekly, monthly plans are lined up with that. But then use that second tier for the people that I call on to find out what drives them inside. And what I find frequently in that world where I'm calling on someone who's an influencer in the middle, like a channel sales manager, a lot of times it's not the who have the tangible incentive thing. It's, I want to be known as the guy, which to be known for is one of the five twos. I want to be known for the guy that added the best new product to our catalog this year. Or I want to be known as the guy that helped them transform this because I helped them unlock some potential that they never had. Or I want to accomplish these goals by hitting these marks to accomplish being another one of them. Because that will help the channel sales managers in the middle figure out what's their behaviors they should be focusing on and then the attitude and technique, but also help them if, if I'm the individual and then I'm calling on someone in the middle, how do I help them start to sculpt that for the people they call on? We've got tons of clients that sell through distribution. Most of my background before Sandler was that. I worked for you know, DeWalt Power Tools for a long time. We sold the distribution and distribution sold to the end user. Um, you know, I sold engineered building products that we had somebody specify them that then had to be sold to the end user. If I can help the person who's in the middle, that distributor, that specifier, whatever, start to sculpt, what should they be asking? What should they be focusing on? And how do I give them something that's more than here's a sell sheet with features and benefits, or here's a slide deck with you know, all of the key talking points, or here's a video that tells you how to use it. How do I help them build that out? I think one of the coolest things that we've added to Sandler in the last couple of years is our relationship with the Ziegler organization. You know, I've got to know Tom Ziegler, who's Zig Ziegler's son fairly well. He lives in Dallas, which is only a couple hours away from Oklahoma City. And his daughter went to the University of Oklahoma, which is right in the suburbs of Oklahoma City. And so we've talked frequently, 
But his dad, Zig Ziglar, who's no longer around, was quoted saying, you can have everything you want in life as long as you help enough other people get what they want. If you take that and you apply that to pretty much any sales role, but specifically channel sales, and I can find out what's going on inside of you and how do I help you get those things, by default, I'm more likely to get what I want. So again, it's three things. Figure out what are my internal motivators, figure out what the person in the middle's motivators are, and then help them build a plan to figure out what the internal drivers and motivators are for the people that are on the ultimate end use of that, whatever that is, because that varies whether it's distribution or specifiers or whatever. Mike, thank you so much. I've thoroughly enjoyed the conversation. It's been very enlightening. If you haven't read Motivational Management by Mike Crandall, then I strongly suggest that you do. And in fact, there are three books that I think you should read in tandem. So there's Motivational Management by Mike Randall, there's Success by Carl Scheibel, and there's Accountability by Hamish Knox. The three of them go together hand in glove. And increasingly, you need to understand that management is not about managing performance per se. That's the least important piece of a manager's job. The manager has a fun- two functions in life hire the best people, and get the best out of them. And those three books will help you to get the best out of them. Lizette Howlett's just uh, written a book called Hiring Right, and that's also worth reading. And if you're interested in channels, then obviously there's my book and David Davis' book uh, called Making Channel Sales Work. And if you're selling through third-party distribution, pay attention to what Mike just said, because if you don't understand what your motivation is, and what drives you, if you don't understand your partner's motivation, and you don't understand the end user's motivation, chances are you will work very hard for scant reward. So on that note, Mike Crandall, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure, as always, and looking forward to seeing you in Orlando in March. Thank you. Thank you, Marcus. It's great to be here. And if anybody didn't know, all the books that you mentioned can be picked up on Sandler.com. They're on Amazon. And I think they're all, I know mine is, are also available in audiobook form now. So lots of different ways to get all those books. And yeah, absolutely looking forward to seeing you in Orlando. And if you're listening to this and you're not signed up, I encourage you to contact Marcus because you can still come and join us at the Sandler Summit in Orlando in March. Excellent. Mike, how can people get hold of you? So easiest way to get a hold of me is uh, you can find me if you Google search Mike Crandall Sandler, uh, you'll probably end up on my LinkedIn profile and on my website. So you can always message me through LinkedIn. That's a great way to get a hold of me. Or on my website, you can find an email address, which if you want to shortcut that is Mike.Crandall, and that's C-R-A-N-D-A-L-L at Sandler.com. But again, if you Google Mike Crandall Sandler, you should be able to find me pretty easily. Brilliant. Do you have a blog or a podcast? So our blog is actually in our Sandler website. So do not have a podcast. I've been interviewed on a lot of them, but don't have my own. Fair enough. Why have a dog and bark yourself? (laughs) Excellent. Mike, thank you very much. Thank you all for listening. This is Marcus Kauke from the Inquisitor Podcast wishing you happy selling. Bye-bye.